All right, so as I said, we're uh, continuing our series summer playlist. Uh, we hope you've been enjoying that. And you know, the core of this series really is this reminder to be intentional uh, about our worship, to really consider what are these songs that we sing about and how can we sing them with real intention and thoughtfulness. And this can obviously be kind of a challenge. Uh, you know, one of the things that we are constantly reminding our kids about is uh, the, the need to kind of think about what they're saying, right? Especially when it comes to words that are a little bit more routine and everyday, you know, phrases like, I'm sorry, or thank you. You know, it's easy for them, I think, to just kind of say the words and hope that they magically carry some meaning, right? So if Gray does something mean to Kaya and we'll say, hey, Gray, apologize to Kaya, you know, his instinct is to be like, fine, I'm sorry, Kaya. And, you know, you have to tell him, like, hey, you, you got to say it like you mean it, right? Or if someone does something nice and, and we say, say, thank you, like, thank you. It's like, no, no, you have to actually show gratitude, show appreciation. And this isn't just kids. You know, this is something that Alyssa and I constantly dialogue about slash fight about sometimes is that, you know, when we talk to each other, we want to convey real meaning. We want to say it like we mean it. And I think this is one of the big challenges of real worship. Right? Not just to sing, but to sing it like we mean it. Uh, and so this morning we're going to be talking about a song that invites us to do just that. This song is called Worthy, and it's by Elevation Worship. And I'll be honest, when I first heard this song, this song came out about, I don't know, five or six years ago. I listened to it, I, I enjoyed the album, and I didn't really think anything of this particular song. It didn't impress me or impact me a whole lot. And the, the lyrics, especially the chorus, are pretty straightforward. They're almost like too simple. The chorus says, worthy is your name, Jesus. You deserve the praise. Worthy is your name. Now, that's a great chorus. But, you know, just the idea that Jesus is worthy of praise, at first glance, didn't seem super interesting or complex or exciting to me. Like, of course, Jesus deserves our praise. But the reality is there's so much behind these words, and there's so much that goes into singing those lyrics like we mean them. And so this morning, we want to dig a little deeper to see the powerful worship in this, the powerful message in this song about what it means to genuinely worship. And so really, we want to ask ourselves this important question about worthiness this morning. Can we sing those words, worthy is your name, you deserve the praise. Can we sing that like we mean it? Can we proclaim that truth with confidence and conviction? So if you have a Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me to the book of Revelation? Now I'm guessing Revelation probably isn't the book you were expecting to be studying today, but I actually believe, I really think that Revelation is probably one of the most, if not the most powerful book on worship in all of scripture. And so it's here that we find a really vibrant, lifelike, vivid picture of what it looks like to worship a worthy God. Uh, so we'll be starting in Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. And, you know, before I read this passage, let me just kind of prepare you a little bit. If you've never studied Revelation before, it's basically a series of visions that God reveals to the Apostle John. And, you know, when most of us think about this book and these visions, you know, I think 
If you're familiar with Revelation at all, you think of kind of these crazy images and all this crazy stuff that's going to happen in the future and the end times, and obviously that's part of it. But in Revelation 4, before John goes into any of that, before he starts to unravel all this craziness, he begins with a simple picture of worship, this vision of God on the throne. And it's John's way of telling us, hey, this is our starting point. Before we get to anything else, let's establish what's true and how we should respond. So Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So again, in this passage, the Apostle John sees a vision of heaven. And there are kind of some interesting, challenging images here, some pictures of these animal things that are angelic beings. Uh, a lot to unpack. But the scene itself, when you think about just kind of the basic level of it, it's pretty simple, right? There's a throne, God seated as a sovereign king in power and majesty, and there are worshipers, both angels and human beings, all singing their songs of praise to God. And the climax of the passage comes at the end. These elders, who sort of represent the church, God's people, fall down before the throne. They lay their crowns before God and sing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. And so this is just kind of a vision of what worship is supposed to look like. What worship is supposed to be in its perfected form. This is like true kingdom worship. This is where we're headed. And there are two questions we want to consider this morning to understand what that means for us now here on earth at CBC 2023. These are questions that John wants the church to wrestle with at all times from now until the end of time. First, what makes someone worthy of worship? Now, before we really get to that question, let's make sure we understand this very simple word. What does it mean to be worthy? And the word John uses here originally comes from the idea of weight or like measurement. So you kind of have to imagine an old school scale, you know, one of those things that kind of balances out weight. And to be worthy meant that you had enough weight to balance the scales for whatever was on the other side, that you had uh, enough to measure up 
to a certain standard. So for example, you could apply this term worthiness to sports and athletes. Those of you who follow basketball know that the last two days have been chaotic with NBA free agency. How many of you guys have been on your phones like 24-7? Just me? Oh, that's kind of sad. Well, anyway, I have been following this, so I guess this illustration is going to be awesome. But all these players are joining new teams, and they're signing these new gigantic contracts. And so whenever there's a, a signing, you know, fans of different teams want to know, is this player worthy of the contract we just signed, right? Will his performance, his ability, his fit with the team ultimately measure up to this huge contract? Is Fred Van Vliet worthy of $130 million for the Houston Rockets? Yeah, probably not, thank you, I know. Does Austin Reeves deserve $54 million? Yes, yes, why aren't you guys saying yes, yes? He does. Does Desmond Bain meet the measure of $207 million? I don't think so. But right when you think of worthiness, it's does this person measure up? Are they worthy? Can they balance the scales? Maybe you think of like the hero, superhero Thor and his hammer Mjolnir, right? Like is he worthy? Does, does he have the heroism and, and sacrificial living and power and all that kind of stuff to pick up this hammer and only well, Thor and Captain America and Vision. But right, you only like the right kind of person is worthy to pick up the hammer. And one of the questions that John wants us to consider is what is the standard to be worthy of worship? How much weight would someone or something have to have to be worthy of praise, adoration, to be bowed before and acknowledged as worthy of worship? And so at this most basic level, in this passage, John is really setting a high standard. He wants to show us how high the bar is to be worthy of worship. And right, I think, you know, obviously we're not all Bible scholars, but you can probably understand the basic meaning of this passage, just kind of reading it together. John, in a nutshell, is just saying, hey guys, look at how awesome God is. All this imagery, all of this action is meant to show us just how amazing God is. He's a mighty and powerful and sovereign king. He's seated on a throne above all thrones. He is covered in beauty and majesty and glory. Angelic beings and people in heaven worship him constantly. And really, what John is doing is he's trying to capture all of the different things that people would have thought of when they thought of what makes someone worthy. Right? All these different criteria... For worthiness. And he says, hey, listen, if worthiness is about power, how about sitting on a throne that emanates thunder and lightning? If worthiness is about beauty, how about a God who appears as precious stones and rainbows? If worthiness is about authority, how about being attended by these elders in their own crowns on their own thrones who are falling themselves on their faces before this king? How about a God who created all things? And sustains all things. In the next chapter, which uh, we're not going to read, the imagery shifts from God on his throne to Jesus on the throne. And, and we see another dimension of worthiness. That Jesus, as the victorious lion of Judah, has come to defeat evil forever. As the slain lamb of God, he has brought redemption and salvation to all people. Jesus opens this mysterious scroll, which basically represents his sovereign control over God's plan for the future. 
And chapter 5 ends with the same conclusion. Verse 11, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. John is saying Jesus meets the standard for praise. And this is an important starting point, right, for people who are, are struggling and people who are going to continue to struggle. John says, hey, the standard for your worship, the standard for you to sing joyfully is not what's happening around you. It's not what you see going on in the world. It's not how you feel at any given moment. All those things matter. But the standard is what is always true, what will always be true of what's going on in heaven at this very moment, that this is who God is, this is what he's about, and this is what his people do. Jesus is worthy of our worship, our songs, our standing, our clapping, our lifting hands. At all times, he's worthy. Now, ultimately, that's important, and we could talk about that forever, but John really doesn't want us to stop there. See, there's a second question that he challenges us to ask in this passage. This is really, I think, the heart of the entire book of Revelation. Who is truly worthy of worship? See, the main point of this passage isn't just that Jesus is worthy. The point is that only Jesus is worthy. That no one else, nothing else, deserves the glory, honor, praise, wisdom, strength, power, honor, forever. No one else but Jesus. See, when it comes to worship, worthiness is a relative term. It's meant to draw us into compare and contrast Jesus with all the other contenders for worthiness. In a way, worthiness is like a contest, right? Like, think about the, the chili cook-off we're having today, right? So after service, we're all going to go out. We're going to taste this amazing chili. We're going to sample it and you know, we're going to think about it and pray about it and vote on which chili tastes the best, which is the most unique. You guys aren't going to pray about it? I'm going to pray about it. But, right, which one is the most aesthetically pleasing? This is serious business, okay? And we're all going to come to a decision of which one is the best. We get to decide the People's Choice Award. Now, on one hand, this award is about this one particular chili, how good it is. But it's also sort of, also like about the other chilies. And I don't want to be mean, right? This is church. Everyone's a, a winner. You're all loved and accepted. Your chilies are all great. But there's one chili that we're going to say, this is the People's Choice Award, but it's only this one chili. And what we're saying is that all those other chilies are not the People's Choice Award, right? They're, they're not quite as good as this chili. We might enjoy them. They might have brought us satisfaction, but only one chili. There can only be one people's choice chili. This is how worship works. Right? A lot of people can be worthy of an MBA contract. A lot of people can be worthy of Thor's hammer. But only one person is worthy of our true, genuine, wholehearted devotion and worship. And to say that Jesus is worthy is also to say and affirm and proclaim that no one else is, that everyone else, everything else, falls short. Now, there might be other things that are good. There might be other things that bring us joy and fulfillment. There might be other things that we love and, and give our time and attention to, but only Jesus is worthy, 
truly worthy of our full praise and devotion. And for John, at the time he was writing, this is really one of the issues he's trying to address. There's a reason why God shows John this vision and why he's supposed to deliver it to the early church. Uh, in ancient Roman culture, worship, this idea of worthiness, was centered around one person. It wasn't Jesus, it wasn't God, it was the emperor, it was the Caesar, right? And so, as a living God, this emperor was declared worthy of praise. He was supposed to be worthy of devotion, worthy of obedience. And all people in Rome were supposed to give their praise, their devotion, their offerings to him. And this is easy for us to miss because we don't live in ancient Rome. But this passage is really a direct attack, a direct criticism at Caesar and the emperors and worship of them. John is not mentioning the emperor by name, but everyone's thinking about it. He's like subtweeting the emperor. Did I use that right? I don't, I don't use Twitter. But anyway, he's not mentioning, he's, it's an indirect criticism. This is like passive aggressive. See this picture of the throne and the elders? This is a, a directly pulled from the throne room of Caesar. This was a lavish palace, probably the most extravagant place a Roman citizen could possibly think of. And John says, you know what's better than that? is the throne that God sits on. And, and he's attended to by these, these elders, and this was kind of supposed to be like in, in the throne room of Caesar. All these kings and dignitaries and people would come, and they'd fall down, and they'd offer things before God, and, and, and John says, or before Caesar. And John says, no, you know what's better than that? Is these great elders laying their crowns before him. Even this song is actually pulled from the language that they would use about the emperors. Worthy are you was a title for this particular emperor, Domitian. Uh, Our Lord and God was a phrase that was received for the Caesars. And so in every area that people assumed that the emperor had ultimate power, John tells us that Jesus is greater. And the message here of Revelation 4 is, again, that to say that Jesus is worthy, to really sing it like we mean it, is to embrace that this is what's true, not the pale comparisons we see in the world around us. It means that we have to say no to all the other contenders for worship, not just Caesar, not just the emperors, but anything else that says, you owe me your devotion. I deserve your praise, your life, your attention, your affection. I deserve all of your worship. Ultimately, what this passage reveals is this hard truth that probably the greatest barrier to genuine worship is always going to be idolatry. It's always going to be this tendency to worship, to believe that someone else or something else is more worthy than God. See, the thing is, what gives worship its power for us, what makes us want to sing loudly, to stand, to raise a hand, to clap, to do that little bounce that goes along with clapping, right? Like there's a little bit of undignified worship that comes with with singing before God. What makes this possible for us to do this is the belief that God is worth it. That he's better than everything else, that what we would give to him, how we would respond to him, goes far beyond how we would respond to anyone else. I will do things and sing things and act in a way that is undignified before God because 
He's better than anything else. I wouldn't do that for this or this or this, but I'll do it for God. He's at the level of worthiness that demands a different kind of response. That's really the the fuel for worship is this belief, this conviction. And the problem for many of us is that if we believe that other things are worthy, are as worthy or more worthy, then it becomes so much harder for us to muster up that energy, that passion, that willingness to kind of lay our our reputation and lay kind of how we look on the line and, and just worship. If what we actually love is other things, if what we're actually committed to is other desires, if what we stake our lives on is actually other hopes, then it's hard to sing it like we mean it. Right? It's, it's easy to sing songs and, and just kind of say the words. It's easy to come to church and repeat, you know, some lyrics. But it's hard to say, God, you are worthy with our whole hearts and to mean it. In his book, True Worshippers, Bob Coughlin says that our problem as worshipers really isn't a lack of worship. We're all actually great worshipers. He says the problem is that our worship is usually misdirected. He writes, worship in the wrong direction is called idolatry. It's looking to anything other than God for our ultimate satisfaction, comfort, security, or joy. When I worship an idol, I'm saying, fulfill me, console me, protect me, rule me. You are worthy of my strength, time, energy, and affections. Only you can make me completely happy. We don't physically bow down to idols, but that's what we're doing in our hearts. A couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Eric talked about the euphoric feeling of being at Angel Stadium and watching Shohei Otani hit a home run. And on one hand, I can, you know, I resonate with that illustration. I know that feeling. But at the same time, my experience at Angel Stadium is always a little bit different. See, I go to Angel Games mostly because it's close. I like baseball, and Angel Stadium is so convenient. I can, like, leave my house and be sitting down in, like, 25 minutes. Okay, and so we'll go, I don't know, once or twice a year. Uh, It's fun. I'll sort of cheer for the angels. I'll stand up when there's a home run or a big play. I'll eat a hot dog. But everything is half-hearted. But by like the third inning, I realize I don't care (laughs) at all. And the reason is, is because my heart belongs to the Dodgers. I'm not there. I don't care about the Angels. Like, the Dodgers are the team I follow. They're the team I love. I check the box scores. I watch games at home. I know their players. I don't even know who the Angels are other than Mike Trout and Shohei Otani. And so I can go there, and I can try as hard as possible with all my might. I can say, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to be excited. Today, I'm going to be a fan of the Angels. But no matter how hard I try, it doesn't change my heart. I've been watching the Dodgers for 30 years. And so by the seventh inning, honestly, I just I want to go home. I'm over it. I never stay all the way through an Angel game. And I think, sadly, this can sort of be our experience sometimes with worship. Maybe not all the time, and certainly not for every person, but there's a part of us that maybe is, is just a little bit held back, right? That, that wants to go deeper, that wants to experience this kind of passion and excitement that we see from other people, that, we, that we've experienced before. 
part of us that wants to sing louder and feel more deeply. But ultimately, we're held back because of, of where our hearts are. Because we can't fake real devotion. We can't fake what we believe. If our hearts belong to anyone else or anything else, if what we really care about with our lives and our actual affection and devotion, if what we care about isn't actually God, then our ability to worship will always suffer. And so the question is, what do we do? How do we come before God and sing these words, worthy is your name, you deserve the praise, how do we sing it like we mean it? How do we sing those words honestly and passionately? I think our song this morning provides two important answers that really come right from Scripture. First, we need to come to God with repentance. Now, the heart of repentance, obviously there's like, you know, kind of confessing sin and, and, and kind of saying sorry to God, but really the heart of repentance is about re-centering or redirecting. It's first acknowledging that our devotion is flawed, that, that we are prone to idolatry, that we have wandering hearts, but repentance is also primarily about turning towards God. It's confessing our desire to try to do better, to bring our hearts in line with what real worship is. One of my favorite songs ever is the hymn, Come Thou Fount. And I know you guys think I don't like hymns, and you're mostly right. But I do like this hymn. Uh, and the first, hymn of the, uh, the first verse of the song has this amazing line. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. And you know, the song is, is speaking about God's goodness and blessing. But I love this idea that in worship our hearts need to be tuned. That as we sing, as we experience God's truth and goodness and, and blessing and presence, that we're like an instrument, finding the right note. Even if you, you can't sing at all, even if you have absolutely no pitch or no vocal ability, God says that he can use your worship to bring your heart into perfect harmony with the kind of worship that God wants for us. In Psalm 51, in the middle of this beautiful song of praise, David sings, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. He's saying, make my heart undivided. If this is the note you're singing, then bring my heart here in perfect alignment. So much of worship, I think, is not about singing what's already true. Not always, at least. It's not about us always coming to God as a finished product, as perfect people who have already mastered devotion and faith, and we just sing triumphantly, I'm already there, and I worship you with everything because I am completely with you. I think most of us feel that way very rarely. Instead, most of the time, it's us coming to God as broken people and saying, help me to do better. Tune my heart to sing your praise. Help me to love you more. Help me to turn away from idols. As I worship you, help me to worship better. And I think in this way, words are, song, are sung as almost as a prayer of repentance, that we are singing repentance to God. Like when we sing the, the line, worthy is your name, there's a tone of, of God, may this be true in my life. 
You deserve the praise. God, I want more of that. I want my life to reflect that. God, I'm not there yet, but help me. And the promise of the gospel is that God meets us in this space. That even in our brokenness, our faithfulness, our idolatry, we can still sing because God redeems, God restores. God sent Jesus to take that brokenness and give us life. And this is what we see in the very first verse of our song. I I love that this song begins with this acknowledgement, this kind of space of of, of sort of repentance. We We sing, it was my cross you bore so I could live in the freedom you died for. And now my life is yours, and I will sing of your goodness forevermore. Right? Before we get to this chorus, before we sing of God's worthiness, we spend a moment at the cross. We remember what Jesus did there. That he freed us from the bondage of our idolatry. He freed us uh, from our devotion to other things. And the song reminds us that our, our lives belong to Jesus. And and really, because of that, because of what he's done, what is most natural for us is to sing, is to declare that God is worthy. And so genuine worship really, I think, begins here. It begins with this first movement in our hearts of repentance. But there's another movement that the song invites us to. We need to come to God with exaltation. I love the bridge of this song. It's probably my favorite part of the song. Uh, when I first heard it and I didn't really like the song, I was like, well, at least the bridge is decent. But it's, it's these words that push us to wrestle with the truth of God's worthiness. Once again, we sing, be exalted now in the heavens as your glory fills this place. You alone deserve our praise. You're the name above all names. Be exalted. I think that's one of our very best, most powerful worship phrases. Right? To exalt God is to lift him high above everything else. To exalt God is to humble ourselves, to acknowledge everything else's place as lower than God. See, obviously God is already exalted. When we sing it, we're not actually making God higher. We're not making his name greater. But what we're singing is, God, would this be true In my life, would this be true in my heart? God, be exalted here as I sing these words. When we sing this, we're acknowledging our own need to lift him up. And that means, once again, that our lives don't always perfectly reflect this, but instead it reflects this desire. We can sing wholeheartedly once again, not because we're perfect, but because that is what we want. This is a prayer of repentance and hope. You know, as I was reflecting this week on, on this message and on, just on my worship times in general, what I realized, and I thought this was interesting, is that the songs that I love the most, the songs that have been most meaningful to me over the years, are actually the ones that I struggle to sing the most. The ones that are hard for me to kind of utter the words wholeheartedly because I know I'm falling short. And ultimately, these have been meaningful because they've challenged me. They've forced those worship times to be almost a wrestling match between me and God. But they've also inspired me and and motivated me. And I think those are some of the most profound moments of growth in my life. 
I think that's the beautiful thing about worship is God uses it to transform us. God uses music and song and poetry and melody, the voices of other people around us, and, and again, he tunes our hearts to who he is and how he wants us to live. He can strengthen convictions that are just beginning to grow. He can help us to see who he is and what he's like and feel excitement and joy over the possibility of following him. And all it begins with, again, is just this simple will to sing a song. To sing words, even though they're hard, and continue trying every week, week after week, to sing with repentance and exaltation. And so this morning, we're going to sing this song, Worthy. Uh, it's really good. It's awesome. I've always loved it. Uh, but remember as we sing it, right, that God really is worthy, right? Regardless of our circumstance, regardless of how we feel, that God is always worthy of our song. He's always worthy of everything we could possibly give him. I think sometimes, you know, it's easy to kind of wonder, right, like, like, why do we even do this? Why do we start and end a service with singing? Do, do I really have to? The answer is, you, you don't have to, but God has said, this is honoring to me. And I deserve it. And he does. He's worthy of it. He's that good. He's that powerful. He's that loving. And he's worthy of everything we can give him. And a song is just a simple place to start. But remember, too, as you do that, that your worship doesn't have to be perfect. Church is not a place for perfect people. It's a place for us to grow together. And so you can sing these words even if it's a struggle for you. Let this be your prayer, your desire. And my prayer would be that our hearts together would be tuned to God's grace and goodness and his worthiness. Let's pray.